Thanks for listening to the weekly teaching podcast for City Church in Knoxville, Tennessee. It is our desire to be a Jesus-centered family on mission. If you live here in Knoxville or are ever visiting the area, we'd love to have you with us at one of our Sunday gatherings. You can find out more at citychurchknox.com. If you're interested in giving financially to help us reach more people in our city, you can give easily at citychurchknox.com give. And finally, if this teaching is helpful to you in any way, we'd love to hear about it. You can email us at info at citychurchknox.com. With that being said, here's this week's teaching. Good morning again. If you have a Bible, turn with me to Mark chapter 8. Mark chapter 8. Um, if you have been with us for the past couple weeks here on Sunday mornings, um, you know that we are in a series called Anomaly. And the basic premise of this teaching series, if you haven't been here, uh, is just that logically and historically speaking, Jesus has had an absolutely bizarre impact on human history. There's really no way to argue that otherwise. He is a complete anomaly in that he doesn't fit in any of the pre-existing notions that we have in our minds for what would make a person significant, and yet he is undeniably the most significant person to ever walk the earth. That's, that's a bit of a paradox. So we're just spending the next few weeks leading up to Easter Sunday attempting to answer the question, why is that? Why does Jesus not fit any categories that we have and also has had such an incredible impact on human history? Why is Jesus such an anomaly? What was it about this poor peasant teacher from a no-name town called Nazareth back in the day that has absolutely shaped the course of human history as we know it? That's the question we're interested in answering during this series. And today, we are going to talk about the significance of Jesus' death as it relates to answering that question. So last Sunday, if you were here, Eric walked us through the significance of Jesus' life. And one of the things that he mentioned was how people today will often say things like, oh, well, Jesus was just a really good teacher back in the day. In today's world, I think it's really common for people to say, well, I don't believe in the whole thing about him being God in the flesh. That's kind of crazy. I I just believe that he was a really good teacher and philosopher who was really kind and really loving towards people. That's who I think Jesus was. But you see, I personally would argue that it is crazier to believe that about Jesus than it is to just believe he is who he says he was. And here's why I say that. What people tend to forget about Jesus when they say that he was just a really nice, gifted teacher is that he was executed by the Roman Empire. He, he was crucified, a, a torturous form of death that the Romans reserved for rebels and people that they wanted to make a public example out of. Jesus died by crucifixion. No serious historian even disputes that reality. So here's my question. Why would the Romans feel the need to crucify a really nice, interesting guy? Right? Like that, that's weird. Like the last time you met somebody who was just really nice and generous and loving towards other people, did you think to yourself, that guy got to be careful. He's going to get himself killed by the state. Like, that's, that's just not how the world works, right? You don't get killed for just being a nice, loving, interesting person. And yet, that is precisely what happened to Jesus. And, and to me, it's not even just that Jesus died. It, it's that Jesus spent an awful lot of time talking about and focusing on and predicting his death. Like, a whole lot of time. He was almost fixated on his death. 
When you read through the gospels, especially the latter half or so of them, all about Jesus's life, you will find Jesus talking about his death with his disciples a good bit. And sometimes he tends to bring it up in moments where, to be honest, it feels like a little bit of a buzzkill in the moments that he brings it up. So the disciples start understanding something about Jesus' identity. They start to grasp a little bit of what he's saying or what he's doing. They will witness Jesus do something incredible before their very eyes. And then, seemingly without any warning at all, Jesus starts talking about the fact that he's going to die soon. Very odd thing to do, right? The gospel writers also seem to echo this emphasis on Jesus' death. So in all of the gospel accounts, the story will move pretty quickly from scene to scene, chapter after chapter. Sometimes the story will skip entire months or even years of Jesus' life at a time. But then when we enter the final week of Jesus' life leading up to his death, everything in the story slows to a snail's pace. So take the Gospel of Matthew, for instance. We've been studying the book of Matthew line by line as a church family for the past two years on and off. In the Gospel of Matthew, the first 20 chapters cover approximately 32 years of Jesus' life. The last eight chapters cover one week around Jesus' death. That's quite the emphasis, just literally, literarily speaking even. Almost like that is what the whole story was building to. Like that's what it was all about from the beginning. Like that's what it was building to. So what makes all of this even more strange, I think, is that Jesus repeatedly also claimed to be the Messiah. In other words, a type of king for the Jewish people. Now, historically speaking, kings tend to die in one of two ways. So they either live a really long, impressive life and die of natural causes, or they are assassinated by someone who wants to become king in their absence. But one thing is clear, when a king dies, their reign is over. It's all over, it all goes back in the box, right? That's the end of the road. The next king is placed into power after them for better or worse. And within a few years, people mostly forget about the old king. The world spins madly on as the phrase goes, the old king is dead, long live the king. A king's reign, in other words, is everything that happens before his death. But yet again, here, Jesus was strikingly different. Jesus went around making this absolutely bizarre claim about how his reign, his kingdom, was going to be established through his death, which is either a completely delusional thing to say, or Jesus was a different type of king. So today, what I want us to do is just wade through a few different passages in the Gospel of Mark where Jesus makes precisely this point, where he just doesn't seem to want to stop talking about the fact that he's going to die. I want us to read through those passages. I want to see what we can glean from them about the significance of Jesus' death to answer the question of his impact on the world. So if you've got your Bibles ready, look with me at Mark chapter 8. We're going to pick it up in verse 27 of that chapter. It says, Jesus and his disciples went on to the villages around Caesarea Philippi. Now, that's a really important detail given that Caesarea Philippi was a city where people recognized pagan emperors as kings and worshiped them as gods. 
There were temples built to emperors, Roman kings throughout the city. Jesus takes the disciples to that location and there, verse 27, on the way he asked them, who do people say I, Jesus, am? Very high stakes type of question, especially given the setting that they're in. Verse 28, they replied, some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and still others, one of the prophets. In other words, a lot of people say you're a prophet, Jesus. Verse 29, but what about you, he asks. Who do you say that I am? Peter answered, you are the Messiah. In other words, the King, Jesus. Jesus warned them not to tell anyone about him. So it's easy to miss here in Mark, but in Matthew's account, it becomes far more clear. Peter has just answered the question correctly, is what Jesus is saying. Bingo, Peter, that is who I am. I am the king, I am the Messiah. You have answered the question correctly. At which point the disciples probably start celebrating, right? It's, it's really him. He, he's here. The Messiah is here. He is who we thought he was this whole time. It's really happening. We're a part of the king's reign. But the celebration by the disciples is short-lived. Look at verse 31 with me. He then began to teach them that the Son of Man, which is Jesus' favorite name for himself, that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders, the chief priests, and the teachers of the law, and that he must be killed and after three days rise again. He spoke plainly about this. Jesus tells his disciples that he is going to suffer and die very soon. And, and I actually love Mark's note there in verse 32. It says that Jesus, quote, spoke plainly about this. Here's why I love that comment. Uh, if you've read any of Jesus's teaching, if you've read any of the gospels, spent any amount of time in them, you know full well that there are lots of things Jesus does not speak plainly about. <laughs> Right? In fact, on more than a couple occasions, the disciples have to go up to Jesus and be like, uh, can you explain what you just said to us? Because we are clueless. There's a lot of things that Jesus does not speak plainly about when he speaks. But evidently, he spoke really plainly about at least one thing, and that's the fact that he was going to be killed. The fact that he was going to die. Jesus directly connects his identity as king to the fact that he is going to suffer and die. That's what's happening in this passage. In his mind, those two things are inseparably linked. Now, that would have seemed like a very disorienting thing for a Jewish person at the time to hear, since their tradition taught them in the Old Testament that the Messiah was a king who would reign and live forever, which helps explain what happens next in the story, second half of verse 32. Look with me there. And Peter took him, meaning Jesus, took Jesus aside and began to rebuke him. Just as a general rule, if you ever find yourself rebuking Jesus, it's a good chance you're the wrong one in that scenario. You, you may want to reconsider your life choices up until that point. But at the same time, I will also say, let's not go too hard on Peter, since he was simply operating out of the understanding that nearly all Jewish people had at the time, which is that the Messiah was a king who would live and reign forever. And in Peter's mind, that cannot happen if Jesus suffers and dies. It's actually a pretty logical pushback for Peter to have. I would think most of us would be thinking the same thing in this scenario. But remember what we said a few minutes ago. Jesus' reign as king comes through his death, not by avoiding it. 
That is part of what Jesus came to do is to die. His death is actually part of how he becomes king, which is why this happens. Verse 33, but when Jesus turned and looked at his disciples, he rebuked Peter. Get behind me, Satan, he said. Satan has to be up there on the list of things you never want to be called by anybody, particularly by Jesus, right? Get behind me, Satan, he said. You do not have in mind the concerns of God, but merely human concerns. Jesus sees in Peter a misunderstanding that must be corrected. It's a misunderstanding that he will have to correct again in Peter when soldiers show up in the Garden of Gethsemane to arrest Jesus and Peter immediately slices off one of the soldier's ears to try to keep it from happening. Same misunderstanding. You see, Peter thinks that for Jesus to be the Messiah, for him to be the king, that means Jesus can't die. But what Peter does not realize is that Jesus' death is not in conflict with his reign. It's actually a part of it. Notice Jesus' language back in 31. He says he, quote, must die. In other words, it's a necessity for him to die. Flip over with me to Mark chapter 9. Mark chapter 9. We're going to pick it up there in verse 30. Not much time passes in the story at all, and Jesus starts talking about his death yet again. So look with me at verse 30 of chapter 9. They, meaning Jesus and the disciples, left that place and passed through Galilee. Jesus did not want anyone to know where they were because he was teaching his disciples. He said to them, the Son of Man is going to be delivered, arrested, betrayed into the hands of men. They will kill him, and after three days he will rise. But they did not understand what he meant and were afraid to ask him about it. Just out of curiosity, you ever been there? You ever not asked a question because you weren't sure you wanted to know the answer to it? The other day, our staff was at a restaurant here in Knoxville that has fantastic food. I'm also pretty sure they didn't do great on their last health inspection, just based on the appearance of the place. But I didn't ask the question because I didn't want to know the answer to the question. Sometimes ignorance is bliss, right? Sweet, delicious, potentially life-threatening bliss. Sometimes that's how it works. You don't ask the question because you don't want to know the answer to it. I think that is a picture on a much more serious level of where the disciples are mentally at this point in their journey with Jesus. They have questions about what he just said about him dying soon, but they don't ask the questions because they're not sure they want to know the answer to them. But notice what Jesus is doing in this passage yet again. He is still trying to reframe his death in his disciples' minds to show them that his status as king is directly connected to it. His status as king, as the Messiah, is directly connected to his death. His reign happens through his death. Flip over with me one more chapter to Mark chapter 10. Mark chapter 10. So here, Jesus is going to set the reality of his death before his disciples yet again, only for them to not get it again. I don't know about you, this all gives me a lot of hope for all the things I don't get as a follower of Jesus. Apparently, that's par for the course when it comes to following him. So praise God for that. Look with me at verse 32 of chapter 10. It says this. They were on their way up to Jerusalem, which is the place where Jesus eventually does die, is executed on the cross. 
With Jesus leading the way, and the disciples were astonished while those who followed were afraid. Again, he took the 12 disciples aside and told them what was going to happen to him. We are going up to Jerusalem, Jesus said, and the Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and the teachers of the law. They will condemn him to death and will hand him over to the Gentiles who will mock him and spit on him, flog him and kill him. Three days later, he will rise. So this time, Jesus gets even more specific about how he will die and exactly who will be responsible for it and specific details of what it will look like when it happens, which is an oddly specific thing for anyone to know in advance about their death. But Jesus divulges, he, he warns his disciples about all of those bizarre, very specific details. To me, what is also bizarre is the disciples' response to Jesus saying this. Continue with me in verse 35. Then James and John, the sons of Zebedee, came to him, came to Jesus. Teacher, they said, we want you to do for us whatever we ask. Yikes. <laughs> they apparently missed Jesus' recent teachings on humility, I think, is what happened here. They weren't present for that. There was a misunderstanding. They come up to Jesus and say, Jesus, we want you to do for us whatever we ask you to do. Verse 36, what do you want me to do for you? Jesus asked. They replied, let one of us sit at your right and the other at your left in your glory. So notice here that James and John, two of the disciples, are still particularly fixated on Jesus' status as king, as the Messiah. And they are completely missing everything that he is trying to tell them about his death. So they say, Jesus, when you take your place on the throne in your kingdom, we would love to be at your right hand and your left. We would like to be your vice president and secretary of state. When that happens, Jesus, we know you're gonna be a big deal and we think it makes sense for us to be a big deal along with you when all of that happens. That's their request. They miss it yet again. Here's Jesus' response to them. He tries to reset them once again on his death. Verse 38, you don't know what you are asking, Jesus said. Can you drink the cup that I drink or be baptized with the baptism I'm baptized with? Which is a figurative way of saying, are you ready to suffer like I'm going to suffer? That's what Jesus is asking. We can, they answered. Decent chance they don't realize what they're signing up for there, but they say we can. Jesus said to them, you will drink the cup that I drink, and be baptized with the baptism I'm baptized with. But to sit at my right or left is not for me to grant. These places belong to those for whom they have been prepared. Jesus tries yet again to help them understand the connection between his suffering and his status as king. One of those leads to the other. His death is not a detour on his route to being king. It is how his reign as king takes shape. Verse 41, when the 10 heard about this, that's the other 10 disciples, they became indignant with James and John. So a cat fight breaks out among the disciples. All the others are so angry that James and John would be so arrogant as to do the thing that all of them secretly wanted to do but weren't doing. They all want to be set on Jesus' right hand and left hand. They're just mad that James and John thought to ask it first. 
So Jesus tries to help them understand yet again. Verse 42, Jesus called them together, brought the disciples around him, and he said, you know that those who were regarded as rulers of the Gentiles lorded over them, and their high officials exercise authority over them. Not so with you. That's not how it's going to work in my kingdom, Jesus says. It's not how leadership works in my kingdom. That's not how status works in my kingdom at all. Instead, Jesus says, whoever wants to become great among you must be your servant, and whoever wants to be first must be slave of all. And then, almost as if to drive his point home, using his own life and death as a working illustration, Jesus says this in 45, for even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Jesus is saying, do you guys not see it? Do you not understand the absurdity of what you're asking for? Jesus says, you guys are fighting over power and position and prominence in a kingdom that will be defined by humility. And in fact, a little more than humility, humiliation. I'm telling you over and over again, Jesus says, that my reign, my rule is beginning through my brutal death and execution on a Roman cross, the most horrific way to die that you could think of at the time, being mocked, spit on, tortured, killed. If you want prominence in my kingdom, Jesus says, that is what it will look like. Whoever wants to be great, Jesus said, should consider themselves everyone else's servant like I am going to do myself, like Jesus is going to do himself. For even the Son of Man didn't come to be served, but to serve others and to give his life as a ransom for many. So here, for the very first time in the Gospel of Mark, Jesus tells us not just that he will die, but actually why he will die. The, the purpose for his death, in other words. Why does Jesus' reign have to come via his death? The answer given is right there at the end of 45, because his death is where he will, quote, give his life as a ransom for many. That is why Jesus is going to die. That's why he has to die, in fact. Now, I think it's here that we have to do a little bit of work to unravel what Jesus means by that sentence. Because the word ransom is, is probably not a word that we use a ton in everyday conversation today. Pretty much the only time I hear it used anymore is in movies, like when a kid gets kidnapped and their parents have to pay a ransom to get them back. I, that's pretty much the only context I hear the word used anymore. And, and while that's actually close to what the Bible means by ransom, it's also just a little bit different. So the word ransom in Jesus' day referred to the amount of money paid to free a slave. So Jesus uses that imagery that most people in his world would have been very familiar with, and he employs it as a metaphor of sorts to illustrate the purpose of his death for his disciples. You see, that the, point, the point that the scriptures make repeatedly, especially in the New Testament, is that without Jesus, you and I are all enslaved to sin. So it's not just that we sometimes do wrong, it's actually that we don't know how not to do wrong. 
such that without Jesus, even the right things that we think we are doing are shot through and through with wrong and selfish motives. So sin, in a sense, is slavery. We are stuck in it. Anyone who has ever seen a person battle an addiction up close understands this about sin, I think. If you've ever known somebody who struggles with alcoholism, for instance, it, it does not do any good to go up to that person and say, hey, have you ever thought about just not drinking anymore? That, that doesn't work because it's about way more than willpower. When you're addicted to alcohol, it's about way more than just finding more willpower. Even Alcoholics Anonymous, a secular organization, will tell people that they need some type of higher power to experience any degree of success against their addiction because they understand that addiction is not just a matter of a few bad life choices. It is a life of slavery to the power of alcohol. But the scriptures even go a little bit further than that. They would actually make the case that it's not just addictions that are a form of slavery, it's all sin that operates like slavery. That on our own, we are stuck in our sin. We cannot just will our way into not sinning anymore because we are enslaved to it. So just think about anything in your life that you consistently struggle with. Let's, let's pick something simple like anger and impatience. Let's say that you have realized you have a real problem being impatient and growing frustrated with your colleagues at work. And, and let's say that, that you say to yourself in response, you know what, starting this week at work, I am not going to get impatient with my coworkers anymore. I am going to be the most calm, soothing presence that my coworkers have ever seen starting on Monday. And so let's say that's your goal. And then let's say that you walk into the office tomorrow morning, you're feeling really good about your plan. You're feeling really confident in your ability to be less of an impatient person. And then almost like clockwork, the second you walk into your job, the first person you see is Keith. And Keith, to be honest, is kind of a tool bag. <laughs> it's kind of his thing. Uh, if you're in the room and your name is Keith, I'm so sorry for the purposes of this illustration, but honestly, don't be a tool bag and then you're fine. So it's totally fine. You can prove the illustration untrue. It's great. So you see Keith and all it takes is a couple of stereotypical comments from Keith for your whole plan to become a patient person to just go off the rails. All of the anger, all of the impatience, all of the frustration that you told yourself you were going to leave behind, all of a sudden comes flooding back into your heart in that moment. Now, we could blame that on Keith, and that might be part of it. Keith's toolbaggery may not help in that situation, right? But at the same time, we could also admit that what is going on in our hearts with impatience in that moment is a little bit deeper than just insufficient willpower. We could admit that maybe we are enslaved to impatience and anger and frustration. Do you see that? Do you see that in you? So, so that's the point that the scriptures make over and over again, that we as human beings are actually enslaved to our sin. And because of that, we cannot just will our way into freedom. 
We have to be purchased into freedom. And the language that Jesus uses for how God will do that is the language of ransom. In Jesus' words, he came to become a ransom for many. Now, that word for in the original language means a lot more than it sounds like it means. So it actually could mean instead of, in place of, or maybe most literally, as a substitute for. So if we wanted to use slightly more descriptive language, slightly more specific language for this verse, Mark 10, 45, we could put it like this. Jesus came to give his life as a substitutionary sacrifice for many. That is what Jesus' death on the cross was all about, according to the scriptures. Him becoming a substitutionary sacrifice for us. Now, to that statement, some of you might say, okay, but why did Jesus have to become a sacrifice? Why did he have to die? for God to forgive us and accept us. To, to some of us, that may make God sound like just one of those other ancient, primitive, bloodthirsty deities who demanded blood sacrifice before they do something for humans. Why, we might ask, can't God just decide to forgive people without someone having to die? Why does there have to be a human sacrifice for it to happen? I think that's a question a lot of us have, understandable question. But when you look a little bit closer at the scriptures, when you read them in their context, you realize that that isn't actually the dynamic Jesus is describing here. In fact, in some ways, it's quite the opposite. You see, Jesus didn't have to die so that God could love us. Jesus died because God loved us. I'm gonna say that again. It's actually a very important distinction. Jesus didn't have to die so that God could love us. Jesus died because God loved us. Let me try to help you understand why that distinction matters. So I would argue that any true demonstration of love that there is contains some amount of substitutionary sacrifice. All true love costs you something in order to give, in other words. So if you've ever tried to love anybody with real issues in their life, someone who is in trouble or in need or emotionally wounded in some sort of way, I think you have learned that this is true in your experience. There is no way to truly love and care for a person in that type of situation without taking some sort of hit yourself. Loving that person is going to require at least some of your time, some of your energy, your effort, your money, your resources. In order to truly love that person, it is going to require something of you. Part of you in those moments will want to bail on them, will want to check out, will want to tell that person to just figure it out on their own somehow. But love is when you refuse to do that. Love is when you stay. If you've ever been on the receiving end of a true sort of love like this, you know well that this is how it works. If you've ever had a need, if you've ever struggled substantially with something, if you've ever been going through something in your life, you know that true love was when another person or another group of people chose to sacrifice some of themselves for you. When someone gave of their time, their energy, their effort, their money for your benefit. 
anybody who has ever done anything that made a difference for us, whether it's a parent or a teacher or a mentor or a close friend, anybody who has done that for us sacrificed something of themselves in some way in order to do that. They, they offered a part of themselves for you, which is substitutionary sacrifice. That is what true love is. It's one thing for people to tell you that they love you when you're hurting. It's entirely a different thing for them to show you that they love you when you're hurting. This is why the Bible says things like this in the book of 1 John. Dear children, let us not love with words or speech, but with actions and in truth. Or inversely, things like this. If anyone has material possessions and sees a brother or sister in need but has no pity on them, in other words, does nothing to help them, how can the love of God be in that person? Answer, it can't. All love requires some amount of substitutionary sacrifice. I think we tend to forget this in a day and age like ours where loving someone often just means being nice to them. When I hear people say things like, oh, we've just got to love people. That's what we got to do. We've just got to love people. If you really dig in and if you ask questions, you'll find out that a lot of times what we mean by that is just basic kindness. And, and to be clear, kindness is great. We should totally be kind to people. I'm a big fan of kindness. But kindness and love are not the same thing. Kindness often does not cost us anything at all to give. Love, at least true love, the type of love we hear talked about in the scriptures, always costs something. I think this is captured really well in the most common Greek word for love used in the Bible. It's the word agape, which means a love of the will, a love of preference. So, so love in the Bible, when this word is used, means actively preferring the other person's well-being to your own in some form or fashion. All love at some level is substitutionary sacrifice. Love gives at least some of yourself for the sake of someone else. So with that understanding of love, that understanding of the idea of ransom, I want us to circle back to Jesus' words in Mark 10, verse 45. We'll put them up on the screen once again. For even the Son of Man, that's Jesus, did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for or in the place of many. So Jesus' death was not about satisfying the bloodlust of some angry ancient deity. It was actually about love. It was God substituting himself for us. It was the truest, most profound demonstration of agape love that the world has ever seen. You see, ancient people, at the time that Jesus would have said something like this, ancient people understood the idea of divine wrath. They understood it. They understood the idea of justice, the idea of debt and, and necessary punishment. They understood all of that, but they had no category for a God that would come and take all of that on himself. They had no, no category for that at all. A, a God who would come and take it onto himself and that he would do it all as a ransom for his people. The cross was the self-substitution of God for humanity. That's what the cross was all about. 
It's the idea that God would see us as human beings in our need, in our desperation, in our separation from him, in our inability to do anything at all about it for ourselves, and that he would then place himself on the hook for all of that. That's what the cross was about, to come be the ransom himself so that you and I could go free. In the words of C.S. Lewis from The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, when a willing victim who had committed no treachery was killed in a traitor's stead, the table would crack and death itself would start working backward. That's what happened at the cross. Jesus, who was a willing victim, offered himself for us in our place as a substitutionary sacrifice for us. And because he did that, death itself can start working in reverse. Everything sad can begin to become untrue and we get to go free because Jesus has become our ransom. So this is why Jesus could not just be a king who lived, but also had to be a king who died. He, he couldn't just be an example for us to model our lives after. He couldn't just be an ideal for us to strive for. You see, we actually needed far more than that. We needed a ransom a substitutionary sacrifice in our place. We needed a king who would not just live for us, but die for us as well. And it was through that that his kingdom could begin to take shape. You see, I, I think just over the course of this series, I, I think there's, there's one more baffling dynamic at play in the life of Jesus, historically speaking, that I think we have to do something with. And that's that Jesus had a far greater impact in all the years following his death than he did in the years before his death. Why is that? Why did the movement of Jesus affect far more people once he was gone than while he was alive? Here's what Jesus said that it was. This is John chapter 12. Jesus is in the final week of his life. And he's very aware of his death closing in on him. And it's then that he says this to the crowds and to his disciples. Jesus replied, the hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Remember, Jesus' glorification, his glory is often code for his death, or maybe his death, resurrection, and ascension. Jesus is saying, in essence, I'm about to die. Very truly, I tell you, verse 24, unless a kernel of wheat falls to the ground and dies, it remains only a single seed. But if it dies, it produces many seeds. So he's speaking in metaphor here, but I don't think it's all that difficult to, 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 to encode, discode? I, don't, I was looking for a word there. It didn't happen. It's not all that difficult to decode. That's it. Found it. It's not all that difficult to decode. He is saying essentially, if all I do is live, if all that matters is my life, if all that matters is my teaching and how I tell you to live, if that's all it is, Jesus says, the impact is limited. But if I die, the impact is far greater because that is how people will be ransomed out of their sin. My death is how people will be rescued into my kingdom. My death is how people will be ransomed into my family. My death is how my kingdom will take shape. And then look with me at verse 27, just a couple verses later. Now my soul is troubled, Jesus says. Remember, true love comes at a cost. My soul is troubled, he says. And what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour? No, 
it was for this very reason that I came to this hour. Jesus came to die. And it's a really good thing that he did because his death is how you and I learn what life looks like. So here's where we'll end this morning. We started off this morning just talking about how a lot of people say that Jesus is just a really good teacher. Said a lot of really helpful things, in other words. And listen, I, I hope that those of us who claim to be followers of Jesus believe that. I, I, I pray that we believe that Jesus was a good teacher. I, I, I pray that all of us find Jesus' teachings helpful and insightful and useful. I would argue that Jesus was the best teacher to ever live. His teachings are unbelievably helpful, unbelievably insightful and dialed into the human condition, all of that. But I think it's here that we also must insist on something as followers of Jesus. Trusting in Jesus is not just about trusting in his teachings insofar as we find them helpful. Trusting in Jesus is about trusting in the thing that he said his life and ministry were all about, and that's his death. What they were all pointing to. Trusting Jesus is not just about trusting that he's smart. It's about trusting that he was our substitute. You see, for, for all the teaching that Jesus left us about how to live, one teaching is mysteriously missing from everything that he said, and that's the teaching on how to live well enough that you are accepted by God as a result. And that's because that teaching does not exist. You see, acceptance from God, forgiveness from God, is not something that you can perform or live your way into. It's something you have to be given from Jesus and then live out of. You can live your entire life based on Jesus' teachings. You can spend your entire existence doing the things that Jesus said to do and still not know him, still not be accepted by him because knowing Jesus is about accepting his death. Knowing Jesus is about understanding that he had to die and it's about understanding that his death was for you and for me. It was our ransom. It was our substitutionary sacrifice and it's through understanding that death that we learn how to truly live. So we're gonna wrap up this morning by just singing some songs about the cross and about the death of Jesus. And, and as we do that, I, I wanna just ask you a favor. I think often here on Sunday mornings, it is easy for us to think about the teaching and the music like they're two separate things, right? So we have this one part of the gathering where we learn, we have this other part of the gathering where we sing. And it's easy for us to kind of see those as disconnected from each other. But this morning especially, I am going to ask you to resist that tendency with me, to separate those two things. Because you see, when, when we sing songs about who Jesus is, and specifically about his death and resurrection, we are not doing something different or disconnected from teaching. In many ways, we are responding to and internalizing the things that we learned in the teaching. When we sing songs about the death of Jesus, we are remembering that Jesus' death itself is something worth singing about, something worth celebrating, something worth reflecting on and rejoicing in with all of our being. We are declaring 
that Jesus' death was not just something that happened in history, but something in history that has direct ongoing implications for us and our lives today. Something that happened so that we could be ransomed out of our sin and into God's kingdom. And as we sing together this morning in response, why don't we just ask that God would make that real to us by his spirit? Why don't we ask that he would bring all of our being into line with that reality about his son? That, That he would help the death of Jesus and all of its many implications make its way into all the corners of our life where it hasn't yet. Let's ask him to help us understand the power and the glory of Jesus' death in our place for our sin as a substitutionary sacrifice and as a ransom. So as we do all of that, the tables are gonna be open for those of us that know and follow Jesus to come and take communion together. Communion, if you're unfamiliar, is just one more way that we communicate, that we commemorate, and and really that we literally internalize the reality of Jesus' death on the cross. As we take the bread and the cup, we remember that Jesus' death is what was at work for us and in us to become the types of people that God made us to be all along. So if you're a follower of Jesus, you're invited to participate in communion with us as we sing. Let's pray together.